we sort of exile people who've gone through divorce. And that happens all the time. And in doing that, what we're saying is that you shouldn't leave a relationship ever. Think of the vows we make till death do us part. And I always think, what death? Like the mortal death or the death of the part of you that chose that relationship at the time? Hey, I'm Mark Groves, and this is the Lifestylist Podcast. Welcome one and welcome all to another Lifestylist Podcast. This one goes out to not only you single listeners faced with the sometimes discouraging prospect of dating, but also those of you already in a relationship and even folks who have found yourself at the point at which yours might need to end, hopefully gracefully. This is episode 406, taking the doom out of dating to find authentic connection and healthy love with our guest, Mark Groves. You're going to learn more about our sponsors later, but let's just give them a shout out now. What the hell? Activation Products, Leela Quantum Tech, Blue Blocks, and Magnesium Breakthrough. Four amazing brands working hard to support you and your health. Now, in today's episode, you're going to meet Mark Groves, a human connection specialist and founder of Create the Love. He's also a speaker, writer, motivator, creator, and collaborator. Dude does a lot. His work is very cool because it bridges the academic and the human, inviting people to explore the good, the bad, and frankly, the downright ugly, and the beautiful sides of connection. His purpose is to empower individuals like you and me to step into our power, transform the way we relate to ourselves and others, and to, of course, create authentic change. You can explore Mark's offerings at createthelove.com and stay updated on all the things by following at createthelove on Mark's wildly popular Instagram account. Now, we cover a lot in this conversation, so here's just a couple of the many topics Mark and I tackle in this episode. Tools for fun and successful dating in the current social climate, the importance of focusing on what's right within ourselves instead of what's wrong, why the most painful relationships are often the very best teachers, and honoring the sacredness of choice to avoid taking advantage of the people we love, how you can keep yourself in check around addiction to dating, mature love and connection versus romantic infatuation, manifesting your dream partner by becoming the vision you seek, discerning when it's safe to be vulnerable, distinguishing healthy boundaries versus walls, why when a relationship is healthy, it doesn't feel like a high, but rather feels safe, the value in taking celibacy breaks to recalibrate the relationship to oneself, how to know when it's truly over as opposed to just a rough patch, and the best practices for conscious uncoupling when it's not productive to continue. And before we begin, I'd like to let you know that you can find complete show notes and written transcripts at lukestory.com groves. Okay, let's all take a deep breath and open our hearts and minds to the humble wisdom of Mark Groves. Enjoy the show. So here we are, Mark Groves. What's up, man? It's been a long time yeah. in the making. Yeah, it's great to see you. And I'm glad we're finally sitting down. I think, I always like to give shout outs for the people that did intros, but I think it was Josh Trent who kept telling me, man, you gotta, you gotta connect with Mark. Same. Like you guys, you guys would have great synergy, do the thing. And, and here we are, we're finally getting to it. Shout out to Josh. That guy is a connector. Yeah. Yeah, he is. And he our is. first time we hung out was in Sedona. Yeah. Yeah. We almost moved there. At close. Yeah. It a near miss. And then landed here, which I've realized everyone has landed here. <laughs> 
Pretty much. It feels that way. You know, you have a few strays that ended up in Florida or Idaho or different places, but almost everyone I know has has sort of fled California and LA, San Francisco, and even even New York City, many people, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I think they were the most emigrated from states, which is not shocking, you know, considering I, you know, I remember hearing someone say that if you want to see what policies people want, just watch how they vote with their footsteps. Right. But with your footsteps. Yeah. I like that. I keep trying to tell people here, like Texas natives that are like, oh, these Californians are going to (laughs) come turn it into San Francisco and needles and feces on the ground. And I'm like, that's why I I hope not. I mean, I think that's why we left, you know, we value, I don't know, feeling safe in a city and having things be relatively clean and taking care of people in need. And I think I'm an old school Californian liberal at heart. But then they just went so nuts that I couldn't hang. Yeah, I'm Canadian. So I don't know for everyone watching that. That should probably tell you everything if you've been following our politics. But it's very similar to California in a lot of ways. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you got your visa. Welcome to the United States of America. (laughs) Welcome. (laughs) Hopefully you, you know, you find a little more, a little more freedom here. That was the idea, I think, when they started this thing, you know, depending on uh, whose perspective you're viewing it from. I want to let everyone know that you can find the show notes for this episode at lukestory.com slash groves, G-R-O-V-E-S, lukestory.com slash groves. I'm sure we're going to talk about links and books and resources that people want to look up. Let's start by asking you, my friend, how, how you got into being focused on human connection, relationships, love, dating, all the things. You know, as I've started to devour your work, it's been impressive that you've really managed to stay in that lane and really focus on that. And I always admire that because I feel like I'm so, you know, <laughs> from day to day, I'm interested in one aspect of human personal development or spirituality or health. And you're just like, this is my thing. I'm locking in. And I have so many questions to follow, but I feel like you've really created an incredible niche. And so I'm wondering, what was it inside your heart or mind that sought to really focus on this information in a way to to serve and to help people? Yeah, you know, the the initial, I think for so many of us, the initial desire for me was really born from a more personal or selfish space. You know, I like that idea that you turn your mess into your message. And I had some relational mess (laughs) to sort through. I used to be a pharmaceutical rep, actually, for a lot of years. I'm still undoing the karma of that. (laughs) But it's given me an interesting perspective on everything that's happening. Uh, And with that said, I, I was really fascinated by how you manipulate human behavior as a salesperson. Like, How do you get someone to change from one behavior to another, one product to another? And I'd always been really interested in that. And so I studied that when I was a rep. I was in sales at an electronic store before that. That was kind of like the 40-year-old virgin in a lot of ways. And if you've ever seen that movie, you totally will get that concept. And in my late 20s, I went through a breakup. I was engaged. And when we broke up, I just thought to myself, like, why am I so good at talking about everything but my feelings? Like, there's something more here. It's not a skill set issue. And how did I get to this place where I was engaged to a really incredible woman, but I didn't want to be? And why didn't I want to be? Like, what was wrong with me? That was sort of the lens that I couldn't choose this person, as opposed to what's right with me, that I could honor that experience and that relational endings aren't failures. And I felt so much pain in that ending in that 
I'd never really felt more connected to myself. I had to make a choice that hurt somebody. But at the same time, my experience of that was it was one of the first times that I truly authentically chose myself at the cost of not belonging, at the cost of criticism. And I'd never felt more liberated really in some ways, but yet so criticized and so unloved by some people who were close to me. You know, a lot of my friends and family were incredibly supportive and others, you know, were, you're just afraid of commitment. You're just this, you're just that. And it was sort of born from there because I thought to myself, like, one, I don't believe in marriage. Like this makes no sense to me. And I was mad at the institutions. I grew up Catholic, you know, I'm in the, I call myself a recovering Catholic now. And it's most do. Right. <laughs> right. I really meet someone that's like, yeah, it was Catholic when I was a kid, still at it. Still, you know, it's so good. Yeah. It's I funny. mean, there's so much truth and honesty in that practice. And so I think like most people, I had that narrative growing up, like you get married by 27 to 30, you have kids at some point right around then. And if you don't, you're not on the sort of normal life track. You go to school, you take this, you don't do art, you don't do, you do something that pays money as a male to become a good provider. And, you know, when my engagement ended, I felt like a friend of mine said this once when he got divorced, that he felt like he was kicked off the train. Like his wife had cheated on him and left him. And he said, I didn't choose to get off. A lot of people choose to get off. And he said, I felt like I was standing on a subway platform and everybody else was just going through their life, just doing what I was doing till I was removed from that. And I really felt like ending that engagement removed me from the narrative for the first time to actually observe. And I think so many of us, that question gets posed to us in different ways. I just think that the most potent common gateway to stopping and finally asking questions like, is there more to this? Why, how did I get here? Why do I do what I do? I just think one of the most potent common gateways is not just relational challenges from a conflict perspective, but also breakups. I mean, breakups are, I mean, all of my greatest lessons came from, you know, most of my life's greatest pains. And, you know, we're not taught to turn towards pain. We're taught to numb it. We're taught to take a pill to get rid of it because there's something wrong with us. And I'm not saying there's not a time when that can be useful. I just thought there's so much potency in grief. And I started writing about what I was learning. And, and that was about four or five years later. And I went back to school, studied positive psychology. And when I started writing about it, I just thought like, why has no one learned this? <laughs> like, why don't we learn about health, finance, and relationships? If you learned those three things, the quality of your life, I would even argue that just learning relationships, the quality of your life will be dramatically changed and everyone can learn it. And why do we hoard these skills? That to me makes no sense. Like, why don't we have a class in school on this? And I'm sure you feel the same way about not just that, but yeah. health especially. Yeah. That's yeah. that's very interesting. I, I, actually, I don't know if I've ever had the thought like why. You know, I've thought about entrepreneurship or different things that yeah. I think would be useful for for kids to learn: spirituality, meditation, things like that. But as you were speaking, I'm thinking, well, where did I learn how to do relationships? And I was like, oh, modeling. Right? right. We look at our caregivers and we sort of cobble that together, and maybe we get a pep talk as as men generally from our dad, or <laughs> yeah. even in 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 my case, I was mostly raised by my mom and. 
I think there was a lot of value in the things that I, I learned about relationships from her telling me, but not so much um, in the demonstration. You know, mm-hmm. you just sort of, I think we just kind of fall into these, not everyone's families are dysfunctional, but I think people that end up in a real committed way of life as, as you are and the people that follow your work, we sort of had modeled patterns of dysfunction unless there's some major interrupter to those patterns. Right. You're pretty much just going to follow what you've seen done, you know, and seems and, and like be, it kind of works and be reactive to, you know, the, the traumas that you've sustained and things like that. So, yeah, well, thank you for, thank you for sharing that and really excited to dive into some more of this. So I wanted to start with something I know very little about at this point in life, and that is um, dating. You know, my wife and I often talk to each other about how relieved we are that we don't have to date anymore. <laughs> you know? yeah. I think I've always found dating to be pretty excruciating. And sometimes I reflect on what we've been through over the past couple of years and how fragmented our society in general has become yeah. as a result of lockdown measures and 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 also just the polarization of people with different points of view, right? It's like if you had a certain criteria for uh, a partner, now there's definitely a dividing line between what your medical choices are and you know how in agreement with the official narrative on current events you are or not. There's there's these diametrically opposed positions that are very firmly held. And so add all that to people not really even be able to go out and socialize. And I'm thinking if you were on, I don't even know what the dating is. I think Tinder is still a thing. I never had a lot of success. I think I did match.com back in the day you know, on my old Dell computer, you know, but I just think like, God, what, what's someone to do if, if A, they live in kind of a remote area or they've been living somewhere where social activities have been stifled. Like what, where are we with dating for single people who would prefer to not be single? Man, the there's so many layers to that as there always is. You know, with with dating, I think one of the greatest challenges that people tend to have is one, they're not really clear on what they actually want. And in a way that serves them because then when they match with somebody, they can be ambivalent or a little un they they're not specific. And then that means they can stay connected to someone who might not be quite that aligned. And in doing that, they're prioritizing connection, maintaining afraid of loneliness and never really actually committed to what they truly are seeking. It's like the fear of not getting it is greater than the fear of losing oneself for relationship. And I think that's so common in relationship. You know, you think of how many people feel resentful in relationship or, you know, that, that they don't feel prioritized and it's because we don't prioritize ourselves, you know, and that starts with dating and we're not, clear on what we want. And then we'll kind of accept anything till we figure out that it's not what we want. And we don't swipe necessarily that, that sort of action on Bumble, Tinder, all the places with that deepest intention, you know, and I can't say I've always brought like grace and reverence to dating either. You know, it's only that you begin to learn, like you're actually picking someone depending on what your relationship intention is, but let's say it's to find a relationship for long term. You're picking someone who's going to have like one of the greatest impacts on the direction of your life, the quality of your life? Are they also interested in growth and curiosity? And do they have the humility to and, and capacity for shame to be able to ask questions and receive feedback? And, and then see that your partner is this incredible gift to your own expansion. 
I mean, think about all the identities and, you know, I think one of the things about the impact of COVID, one is that unconsciously we have been taught that otherwise appearing healthy people are actually a biological threat. <laughs> right, right, right. And I, th I think about that. On both sides. Right. Too. Right. <laughs> you know, like, right. You have people that haven't undergone um, any medical experiments and many of them, and possibly rightly so, are afraid to interact with people whom have yeah. because of the possibility of, you know, getting medically infected. Right. You know, I have to dance around some of these words, not because of the podcast, it's relatively free, but, you know, we're live streaming on platforms that oh, yeah, have yeah. algorithms I'll use that, the C from that, now stop, that stop different words. But, you know, you have people that are that are wearing masks and distancing and, and stuff still, even though it's kind of not um, being mandated in many places. But then the other side is like, yo, if you've done the thing, don't come near me. I don't <laughs> right. want to get shed on, you know? Right. So it's like, I don't how do you think win? Of, yeah, I don't right? even think about that part. It's like, oh God, just finding someone, you know, you like the same kind of movies and you have a the general <laughs> right. value system that aligns, you know, all those areas of compatibility from the superficial ones to the, you know, the deal breaker, meaningful ones. But then, yeah, God, we're, we're faced with a whole other obstacle right now. Well, there's so much work to be done in, even in that because one, we've moralized our medical choices. And, you know, I, I interviewed uh, Jay Bhattacharya, who's a professor of medicine in, at Stanford in public health. And he was one of the founders of the Great Barrington Declaration. And he was saying that, like, that is an absolute failure of public health to moralize it. And we've done that. And so we've either inferred that the choice to get a medical intervention or not, either of those have been moralized. And... And, and and correlated to values. And, you know, I think the hard part for no matter what side we might be on or a centrist observing both, and that's true in politics, it's true in anything, that we're able to explore why we do that, you know? And we do that because we want to organize the world. We want to make it simpler. In psychology, they call it a decision heuristic. It's like a shortcut to make faster. It's like if 12 people are running by you down the street. You don't question what they're running from. You just start running. And it's a similar thing that we do when we associate identities. And we do it with politics because look at how the choice to get or not get is also aligned with a political position. So much so. It's Which really, why? It's such yeah, a false dichotomy. It's really interesting. Yeah. And, and like how do we observe? Because you talked about like, where do we learn about relationship? We learn it in our childhood. You know, unless you have an outside education on it, which almost no one does, you don't even realize the unconscious drives of what's attracting you to unavailable people. Like people will say to me, well, I want a really great relationship, but I keep choosing these people who are unavailable, who are narcissistic or whatever the word might be. And it's like, because you have this unconscious wound that is choosing to be rewounded in the same way. You know, when we look at our relational patterns, we tend to be attracted, till we're not, to people who hurt us in a similar way as a parent who wounded us the most. 100 right. million percent. That's, but that's been my experience. Yeah, mine too, yeah. unfortunately. You know, yeah. and the benefit, of course, is that unconscious draw re-exposes us to something that we're being invited to heal, usually generational, yeah. right? You know, you hear people say, I never want to become like my parents. And inevitably, they become often exactly like their parents.
One of the main supplements I've been using for over a decade is called Oceans Alive. It's created by Activation Products, a wildly innovative company in the health space. These guys provide both definitive information, extremely novel and effective products, and let you take the lead in maximizing your health and vitality. Oceans Alive is a premium blend of two specifically cultivated, hand-selected marine phytoplankton strains. It's grown in a sterile photobioreactor, so it's completely pure and free of all contaminants. The nutrient density of this microalgae provides you with a wide array of vitamins, minerals, essential fatty acids, and amino acids. It's actually the purest, most potent marine phytoplankton supplement in the world. Activation uses a scientifically proven natural method of stabilization that doesn't require any heat, cold, freeze-drying, or any processing at all, so it's totally raw and natural. They just add the freshly harvested phytoplankton to a pure, concentrated sea mineral solution that instantly stabilizes each cell in its perfect condition with freshness waiting to be consumed. It's harvested from pristine growing conditions involving only purified seawater, phytoplankton, CO2, and sunlight. The raw phytoplankton is stabilized in a trace mineral solution to maintain freshness and incredible bioavailability while adding additional benefits. Oceans Alive natural antioxidant content reduces oxidative stress, promotes healthy cellular growth and development, and boosts cognitive function and mental focus in a very noticeable way. Oceans Alive is my top travel supplement for this reason. It's incredibly powerful, so remember, a little goes a long way. To try Oceans Alive, visit activationproducts.com. Use the code LUKE for 15% off any of their amazing products. Now, this code is a one-time use only, so use it wisely. Again, that's activationproducts.com, and the one-time code is LUKE. This is such a good point, and I know I'm going to deviate. Let's deviate. Sometimes I try to be linear, and then I'm like, ah, it doesn't work. There's too many <laughs> threads. But I think there's something really valuable in that pattern dynamic that you described, wherein you have wounds that have not been healed or addressed, psychic, emotional wounds, right? And yeah. So you're unconsciously drawn to people that replicate those fam familial and familiar patterns to have the opportunity to sort of karmically reenact the dynamics yeah. that you had with people that hurt you. So, okay, got that. What's really beautiful about that for me is looking back on relationships that mirrored that patterning and really feeling a sincere gratitude for that person as a profound teacher, mm. you know, because yeah. it, it's such a it, different it, way of seeing yeah, anyone acts, you can know? you can bring up blame and they did this wrong and you know even if you identify there was a common denominator of a you in that equation that kept inviting the same type of unavailable or abusive or needy person or whatever the case may be but if you get past the the blame and resentment of those past experiences underneath that is a really sweet gratitude and compassion for each of those teachers but i think that's only possible if you're so inclined to look deeper and actually start to to disintegrate some of those formerly unconscious patterns, right? So, I, I mean, I can look at everyone really that I've ever dated and they they were a lock that my key fit. Yeah. And some of them ended painfully for one or both parties and there might be resentment on the other side. I, I hope not. I've done my best to make amends to those that, you know, it, wherein it was appropriate, but I am totally clean from my perspective of everyone that I've ever dated. 
in, in terms of like, there's zero blame or resentment. And in fact, some of the ones that have been the most painful are the ones for which I have the most reverence and gratitude right. because they've delivered to me on a silver pattern. Here is your shit <laughs> yeah. that needs to be healed. Yeah, and, I, and I perfectly enacted, you know, the, the melodrama of, of your past relational dynamics and childhood trauma in order for you to so clearly see and have the opportunity to undo that and to, to truly heal it to where it's, it's not operational anymore. Isn't that such the gift, you know, like just that simple shift of being able to look as you're inviting us to do, to look at your past partners and relational experiences, no matter the time length, it's, I think it's more related to the openness that we have that, that we look at them, that it's happened for us, you know, yeah, and, yeah. and I think the, the challenge, para, the challenging paradox that people have to sit in that is that we think that we have to forego that we might've been the victim of experiences, but no, you can still be the victim of an experience that you unconsciously chose or did not, but that in some way it is serving to expand us. I mean, those are the two options. You either see that things happen for you or to you. You can choose either one. One is empowering and the other one's disempowering. And, and being able to turn towards all of our past with that perspective is so liberating because now, yeah. you know, when you look at the things that are most painful relationally, but I'd say that's true about anything in life. And you ask, what is it here to teach you? What skills would you need to not replicate it? You know, all that you're starting to take the, the, the whiz, you know, it's, I like to think that knowledge becomes wisdom when it is integrated. We're all sitting on boatloads of knowledge, you know, and then repeating patterns, pretending that we're not choosing them. It's another mistake. Oh, I can't believe that just happened. Like it, we need to take responsibility for how we relate. And what a gift when we look at relationship as this sacred container, no matter the type, with mom, with dad, with partner. I just think that partnership is the, the greatest magnifying glass to our stuff. And if you can master or attempt to continuously master, because <laughs> of course that's a moving target because there's always more lessons, romantic relationships, how hard is a work relationship after that? You know, like if you can learn how to be regulated yeah. in as much as you can in conflict with the partner and, and even master repair after, oh, I mean, that's everything. It just completely changes your life. And, you know, that's why when I look at relationship, it's like you're in relationship to everything that isn't you. And so whatever challenging relationship you have, it could be your phone, it could be drugs, it could be alcohol, it could be anything wherever you're not in choice in the relationship is something sticky. You know, it's, it's healing. It's not healing. It's covering up something that needs to be felt. You know, I think of Gabor Mate where he says, the wrong question is why the addiction? The right question is why the pain? And, you know, so much of our, I would say almost all, if not all of our pain in life is created in relationship to someone, something, and that's where it has to be healed. You know, I think we can do enough healing on our own. <laughs> but that's why I think dating as a practice is an incredibly healing practice. It should feel expansive. It doesn't, if it doesn't feel expansive, you're not doing it right. <laughs> you know? <laughs> oh, man. Like I said, just thinking about the prospect of doing that, you know. And, you know, on that note, mm -hmm. it, it's, it's funny because I think... I don't think I'm sure at times in my life and I've, and I've observed this, I believe that I've observed this in other people is that sometimes 
one will even stay in a relationship because the prospect of dating and meeting someone new is worse than the painful relationship right. you're in, you know? I mean, you see this kind of with older couples that sort of bicker and tolerate yeah. each other and, and don't seem to be terribly in, in love in, in the classical sense. And, you know, you kind of look at them and go, you guys just don't want to deal with being single and dating and meeting someone new. So you're just kind of hanging in there, you know? Um, it's so tough because you think yeah. it's like the devil you know is better than the devil you don't know. But very much our life is you know, I think an unconscious exploration of the economics of life, the economics of relationship, till you realize that, you know, when you actually accept the fact that you're only on this rock for a limited time and, you know, how do you want to live it? And I think it's been so normalized. We've inherited a normal complacency in relationship that it shouldn't be this place where we have shared values and we're still have reverence and respect for one another. And and that's what I think like one of the greatest fallacies that we learn is that relationship length is the greatest indicator of relationship success. And you see that in memes where it has like a couple people who are like a 90 holding hands and it says, happy 75th, how'd you do it? So, oh, well, we did it when we took commitment seriously. And I find that too be such a shameful way of communicating. Like we don't believe that young people today can commit to shit. But, you know, we all know people who have been married for or together for a long period of time who don't like each other. So certainly staying together can be a sign of relational success. But what it does is it infers, especially when we experience shame when a relationship ends and look at that religions, culture, we often shame relational endings. We sort of exile people who've gone through divorce. And that happens all the time. And in doing that, what we're saying is that other, you shouldn't leave a relationship ever. Think of the vows we make till death do us part. And I always think, what death? Like the mortal death or the death of the part of you that chose that relationship at the time? And oh, that's good. Right. You know, that's like, a tweetable right there. A, there's the clip for the beginning. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Editors take note. That was, that was a good one. Well, I think of how, because we're so afraid of relationships ending, we don't have the conversations that might end them, or we avoid conflict in general. And because of that, those are actually the conversations that deepen and enrich the relationship. And they might end it, but they always will liberate it, you know, and that liberation being maybe together still, but maybe not. As soon as you operate from a have to, I have to be in this relationship or I have to stay, you're actually not in choice anymore. As opposed to, you know, I thought about that instead of it being this expectation that your relationship lasts forever, because that's a beautiful thing. I want to build this thing. And there's an idea of commitment that is, I'm not going to go anywhere else. And we also have to, instead of it being an expectation, turn it to an intention. If I wake up every morning and I say, okay, my intention is to, is to love this person in a way that will get to this place of, let's just call it forever. How would I show up that day? So much different than like, well, in 10 years, they can't go anywhere anyways. So like, I'm going to stop going down on them. I'm going to stop, you know, like we start to get complacent and we start to take people for granted. And in doing that, we don't honor the sacredness of choice. Like the fact that out of everybody your partner could choose, they choose you. 
And the fact that out of everyone that you could choose, you choose them. I mean, I don't know a more beautiful declaration than that. And I think we forget that. And, you know, it's so human to forget that. And, you know, I, I hope that, that at least in people's experience of the pain of their relationships, the disconnections, the whatever it is, even in dating, getting ghosted, it's like, sit in it. You know, I feel like so much of our grief and our experience of abandonment and rejection brings up stuff that's actually old pain that's never been processed. You know, you're like texting with someone for a week and then they stop talking to you and your world is over. Like to me, like you're placing so much of your worth in whether someone chooses you. And that's conditioned by society because society says, hey, why are you single? As if there's something wrong with you, as if you have some sort of ailment. Because the indication that you're worthy of being chosen that is that you're in a relationship. And this is what unconsciously society has done to us relationally, is they've said it's important that you're in one because then we know you're valuable. And as soon as you place your value in your relationship and even seek to heal your wounds by chasing someone who rewounds you or makes you happy, then <laughs> it's always in the other. And you're not sourcing your own worth. And that's the difference between being alone and being lonely. You know, loneliness is this feeling that someone else is going to give me something. And it's not to say we can't long. You know, I think that's the, again, we get caught in these ideas like, well, but I long for love. Good, but long for it from a place of knowing that if this person messages you back or not, or chooses you or not, that you still love yourself. You know, and that's, that's why the gift of, of being left, you know, and I've experienced painful endings in relationship too, you know, much like you were talking about. And I always think when someone says, you know, they left and they took a part of me. And I think of my own experience of when I've had that happen. It's because I gave them something to take. It doesn't mean being left can't be incredibly painful. Of course it is. But it's being able to recognize where are the sticky parts of how you relate? And that's again why like dating is such an awesome vehicle to be like, where do I not have boundaries? And I think dating is such a fun practice to be able to say, I'm going to test out a no here. I'm going to test out a yes here. I'm going to feel into what attraction is, you know, and we get to play. You know, as I said earlier, if it's not fun, then you're placing something too important upon it. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. In terms of dating, Something that I eventually figured out just by being motivated by painful <laughs> relationships. <laughs> Two things. One, and I want to get your take on this and see just what your perspective is, but having a hard stop and just clearing the chess board. For me, that was almost two years of celibacy and zero, not even not dating, but not like not even a cute look or an extra like on Instagram, just zero intrigue. Smart. Nothing. Because I just couldn't break out of certain patterns. And it's just like, okay, I got to totally start over. Well, it's like any drug. You just have to abstain from it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And there were a lot of addictive and avoidant patterns and things like that. So there was, you know, just a lot of self-work, but that's kind of part one of it. And you can expand on it however you see fit. But what was really useful for me was when I came out of that and felt like I was ready, I had a very definite plan around how I was going to date in ways that were different before. 
you know, mm. a dating plan, kind of a vision of what I wanted, an inventory of what I was able to provide as the partner, maybe even more importantly, right? Yeah. It's like looking at that vision going, okay, can I reverse that in a mirror? <laughs> can and I do all Can I things? offer the things that I'm looking for, which is really useful? But then, I mean, even with the mechanics of dating for me to just avoid some of those patterns, there were governors on some behavior, like just getting obsessive and texting too much and, mm-hmm. you know, meeting someone and then you go on four more dates that week and it's just, ah, you get so wrapped up in it, you know, just kind of <laughs> addictive stuff. And so I, I had a pretty solid plan and the pattern interrupting combination of just taking off a hard stop for an extended period of time during which I really learned how to enjoy my own company. And I used to date myself, take myself to the movies, take myself to a romantic dinner. I mean, it sounds kind of pathetic now that I'm sounds verbalizing awesome. it, nah, it but great. I really learned how to feel comfortable being by myself. And it took, it took a long time. And then when I felt like, man, I really, I can sit home and not feel like a loser just being by myself and not feel lonely and not have to distract myself or run away from what might come up in the absence of that intrigue and excitement that that romantic relationships bring but having a plan was really useful knowing that i was never going to do it perfectly but that it wasn't just like reckless abandon and i'm just going to see what happens because like just seeing what happens or just do what feels good was not bringing you know the the results that i was looking for so i guess maybe what are your perspectives on that taking a hard stop, taking a break, and then formulating, you know, some sort of framework or blueprint for when you're you're ready to get back out and, and potentially meet a, a meaningful partner. I mean, I think it's brilliant. You know, I, I used to call it a, you got to take a dong detox or a vaj vacation. <laughs> you know, this idea that you have to, as you, you said, like when you abstain from it, now you can observe it, but you're also not getting the the sort of elation, the neurological hits, you know, from dopamine, oxytocin, all the things that are pulling you away from looking at things. Like, yes, it's like any yes. addiction, yeah. you know? And I don't think we often think about it that way. And I did the same thing where I was like, okay, I'm going to not, I can't even get into dating or, you know, like, you know, all the engaging in any unconscious or conscious attempt at sexual affirmation or relational affirmation. And I mean, sitting in that was, <laughs> I remember wanting to text this girl to hook up and it was like a drug. I had to be like, I, I, I just remember how hard that <laughs> moment a, was. Call a sensible friend. Tell me not to do it. <laughs> <laughs> You're right. Right. Like take my phone from me. Yeah, yeah. And I'd never sat, you know, in, in nervous somatic work, they talk about riding the wave that you like have this feeling that you're uncomfortable with. So then you reach for the phone, you reach for the thing, you maybe withdraw, whatever your way of processing or coping is. And you don't do it. You like sit longer in and then the wave subsides. And it might be the first time you've ever sat through the wave. And that's that feeling you were talking, the sort of incessant texting. It's like, what feeling are we trying to treat with the texting? And this is when we start to sit in our anxieties. We start to explore edges of feelings we've never explored. Like, oh, mom wasn't attentive. Like, this is what I do. I, 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 whenever there is space, I'm uncomfortable with it. So I take space away. And in attachment theory, there'll be more anxious attachment. When someone else's coping strategy is they need space. 
And they're usually the ones that the ones who don't want space are attracted to, you know, it's this vice versa. 100%. Right. And you can see how that makes so much sense because each person validates the other person's idea of the world. When I get too close to people, they pull away. And there's a perfect polarity in that, right? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I know. I know that, that, that game very well. Yeah. I mean, it's, so taking space is really important. And then what you're saying about creating a plan. Yes. We often think that's not romantic. (laughs) You know, we want to like just meet someone by chance, but yeah, we're looking at our phones all the time. So how do you meet someone by chance unless they're on your Tinder? And then you're like, I can never meet anyone. It's like, get your head out of your fucking phone. You know, like people are walking around, not making eye contact as much anymore. You know, and I think we forget how many miracles happen. Or right now, even just facial expression, you know, the nonverbal communication and micro expressions that you would miss. I mean, think of how many like beautiful love affairs have probably been missed just because you couldn't see the Mona Lisa smile on the mm. woman in the coffee shop or vice versa, so right? True. There's like, what do you do for cues now when people's faces are obscured? It's a totally... When you think of the... As if it wasn't hard enough, you know? Right. And I, I mean, you think of all the psychological implications of that because I found myself learning how to communicate more with my eyes, you know? Me too. Right? You'd be like, consciously like trying, yeah. trying to show people that I'm smiling, especially if I'm request, you know, like someone seats you at a table and you're like, actually, you know, I'd prefer to be at that one. Can I have that one? But like making super smiley eyes under the thing yeah, so right. that they know, you know, that I'm not being a jerk or, you know, and then you sit down and you take it off. Yeah. Well, that. they only, the V's, they only, they go only at between six and seven feet. So if you're, <laughs> if you're in a chair, they, they fly over you. Well, I'm under six feet. So I'm fucked. Yeah. <laughs> yeah oh I, no, I'm good. I'm good all the time. Yeah. yeah okay. Yeah. I like that. I like that's following the science, right? Yeah. 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 100%. Um, that for me, I think is that creating the vision. Mm-hmm. What do I want my relationship to be like? What do I want it to be? And what would it feel like? How, what would be our habits, our behaviors? And then, like you said, then doing an audit. Am I those things? Can I provide those? You can't ask for shit. You can't do, you know, like that's just fair. And, and can you grow into those things? So if you are asking for them, can you build the skill set? And in doing that, what you start, you know, it's kind of like anything, you know, when you buy a, when you buy a new car and you all of a sudden see that everyone has that car, it's like, it's the same idea. You're starting to place where you're going to send your attention. And what I think is so beautiful about having that perspective is when we're afraid of not finding love or that there's not enough people, I hear that about every city. There's no good people in New York. There's no, I was like, do math. Like you can be really bad at math and still find good people in all these cities. It's if we don't believe that it's, if we believe that we're protecting ourselves from something, you know, because we can all find a story that proves any of this bullshit untrue. And so we have to understand what unconscious beliefs are getting in the way, you know, and, and by creating an intention and what I'm looking for and what I actually want, I'm able to rapidly sort. And most of the time we're dating from the perspective of I'm waiting for someone to choose me. Oh, they, you like me? I like you too. Oh, you want that? I want that too. As opposed to really sitting in a space of discernment, like I'm choosing. It's like people constantly be like, they're the one. It's like, you just fucking met them. And like, don't get me wrong. I love a good Disney romantic story that is not based on much of reality. But what happens is, is as soon as you give someone a title, 
you actually remove your ability to be more discerning. And so by just sitting in this space of I'm choosing, are they a good fit for me? Allow them to become the one to earn that place. And even the idea that there's only one person is again, another scarce perspective, because if you're holding on to someone who you've titled that and the relationship is not healthy and it's filled with red flags, you're going to have a harder time letting it go. Probably because you're ashamed because you told other people and also because you're believing in a story. And that's one of the hardest things about relationships, especially breakups, is you're really having a story end. Not realizing that the story's not over. The page is turning. You're the writer, you're the director, you're the casting agent, you're everything. And you can still create the story. It just might look different. It might be with someone else. And or maybe the, maybe the story is not over, but the chapter is. Right? Yeah. It's, it's, there's, there, but when you're, I mean, when you're in a painful breakup, you literally, it's, for me, it's usually been like, oh no, all life as we know it is over. You know what I mean? It's <laughs> yeah, just it's the same. When you're in the throes of it, you, it's, it's just so, dead. so difficult to yeah. see that in two years, I'm going to be living here and with this person and I'm going to look back on this with fond memories and great lessons. You know, it's just like, ah. Yeah. And you have a friend who's like, everything happens for a reason. And you're like, fuck you. Yeah, you're like, fuck your reasons. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think by now most of us know that minerals are important, but it's really tough to know which minerals to take without knowing what you need. And mineral imbalance is a huge issue, so guesswork is pretty sketchy. Wouldn't it be great to know not only what minerals you need and which mineral levels are too high? Well, I recently found a very cool way to accurately test all of that and take the guesswork and wasted supplement spending out of the equation. I'm talking about upgraded formulas, upgraded hair test, and consultation. It's really fast and easy to do. You just cut a couple small hair samples, mail it in, and then book your consultation, during which one of their expert staff explains your mineral levels and even your heavy metal toxicity. We just sent in my wife Allison's test and got some good and not so good news. She was luckily very low in lead and mercury, which is awesome, but we also found high aluminum, which is less than ideal. Luckily, her mineral levels look super solid overall, but her magnesium levels were a bit high and her selenium a bit low. So with that accurate information at hand, we did a heavy metals detox protocol to get that aluminum down and also determined that she does not need to supplement magnesium for the time being, but that it would do her some good to up her selenium intake. And not only does upgraded formulas have you covered on the test and consultation, but they also happen to make the best absorbed nano minerals I've ever found. Getting your minerals right can sort out hidden deficiencies that are affecting thyroid, adrenal, and many other systems in your body. So I highly recommend you check out the test and consultation at upgradedformulas.com. Now you can also save 15% off your first purchase by using the code Luke at checkout. That link again is upgradedformulas.com. Going back to creating that vision, and, and I think why I like touching on this is because that's what I eventually did was kind of, you know, a vision, some vision work around the kind of partner that I wanted, what I could bring, what I couldn't bring. And ultimately that led to my just outstanding, fantastic relationship that I'm in now. Yeah. And I met your wife last night. She's so lovely. Yeah. She's stellar. Yeah. She's stellar. incredible. I'm, I didn't know she used to be a hip hop DJ. Yeah. She's done a lot of stuff. Yeah. yeah. She was like a athlete and yeah, all kinds of, we've had a very different journey in so many ways. She just doesn't drink because 
just doesn't really like to drink, you know? That was like Kylie. I was like, <laughs> I love to drink. I don't drink because I love to drink. Yeah, same. I don't drink because I'll end up in jail so fast. <laughs> but anyway, go, going back to that, something that was useful for me was, okay, in terms of the vision, like, okay, what do I want? Yeah. Allowing myself to be extremely superficial. I like brown hair, I, you know, just whatever. Sexual preferences, physical attributes, things like that. And then sort of, you know, continuing to go deeper on that, like actual core values. Again, really specific. Yeah, values, morals, you know, life goals, preferences, cultural things, all of that. But what was really important for me was identifying red flags yeah. that are, you know, negotiable or malleable to some degree. And then non-negotiable, like it's a hard out date too, if these things show up, which for me, for example, might be somebody being dishonest or have a drug problem or that is unaddressed or something like that. Yeah. Just major, major issues that I didn't want to get tangled up in. And having that really comprehensive kind of want, don't want allowed me to have that discernment. I'm, I'm glad to use that word. It's not like judging that person like, oh, they have a bunch of red flags. They're a narcissist, this, <laughs> yeah, this, yeah. this, you know. So if you spot it, you got it, right? Like, how do I know they're <laughs> that way? Because I've like... either been that way or there's parts of me that are still that way. But the discernment and and also that point you made so, so importantly was that I'm going to decide, I'm going to choose. And and that the the empowering element of that discernment. But if I don't really know what I want and don't want, then who's doing the choosing, right? Then it's just kind of haphazardly falling into whatever thing and trying to cobble it together according to what feels good versus what is going to have the most likelihood of a sustained relationship of, of whatever longevity that's beneficial to both people continually. Yeah. So what, I, I guess in that, aside from just what we want, where do you land in terms of, you know, red flags and non-negotiables and how do we even discover what those are? And is it worth documenting that in some way and using that as part of our discernment arsenal? Yeah, it's it, going from that sort of broader brush and then bringing it down to like a more finite piece would be exactly what you're saying. Looking at, okay, when you're writing your relationship vision, write it with the language of we. Like we, we make love often. We work through conflict successfully. We listen. We take time to prioritize ourselves. Yeah. And that way you're already stating and it's already occurred. You know, the power of language is so important. And then getting very clear on what you're saying, your deal breakers. Deal breakers are things you're not negotiable on. They're usually things like drinking, not drinking, drug use, not drug use, having kids, not have kids wanting to get married, not wanting, you know, there are things like that in the context of like, nice to have, you know, like, uh, I think for people, it can, if you get really specific, sometimes you can miss something that's walking towards you that actually is a fit. You know, it's interesting in some of the research is that they ask people what they want, they write it down and then they go on speed dating and they actually kind of throw the whole list out the window as soon as they have a connection with someone. That's why it's so important to place discernment and not self-abandoning as the number one priorities. Because as soon as you know, you're know you in this state of, I need them to choose me, or I have to, or whatever that longing is, that's the stuff you have to sit in. Because you're placing too much in the have to, instead of 
this isn't actually a match for me. I see that a lot in the healing of someone's drawn to unavailability or chaos. Then when they meet someone who's calm, they're like, boring, like, I don't want to bang boring, you know? (laughs) And we have to learn how to discern between attraction and activation. Like nervous system activation is often familiar and associated with love and connection because we saw it in our parents, you know? If our parents were unpredictable, unreliable, chaotic, we'll associate love with those things. Not to mention all the neurohormones that come out when we are in those types of behaviors. And then often when we have sex with someone who we don't feel chosen by, we don't feel safe with, we don't, the actual experience of arousal treats the pain, treats the suffering so much like a drug. And so that's why the abstaining is so important because you're able to yeah, you know, maintain some level of still being in your body, not being dysregulated. And so we have to learn, like, what does calm feel like? Like, can I be, because I think if any of us have been attracted to instability or, or chaos or uncertainty, I raise my hand here, then the experience of calm and being chosen is like so fucking confronting. And that's really good stuff right there. Yeah, it's, I've looked at this stuff a lot. I think that's why I was so excited to talk to you. Even though I'm in a relationship and it's very successful by all metrics and just in terms of peace and just, it's a really good time. But since most of my lessons have come out of this area, I mean, most of the really hard lessons, one thing that I've looked at in this regard is how when you meet someone and it just feels so right yeah. and so exciting and just so enthralling that sometimes it's not that it's right, but that it's familiar. But you don't know that it's familiar. You just know that this is super fucking exciting. And I can't stop thinking about this person and when I'm going to see them next and, and all of that. And not that there's anything wrong with no, having that, not. but it's, it's, it's worth being aware of. But to your most recent point, there have been times in in my current relationship where because there's no drama and it's just super simpatico uh, for a number of different reasons that I, you know I won't wax on because it, I don't want to be self-indulgent but there have been times where I'm like not so much anymore but in the beginning like wait is this right because it just feels like home. It feels safe. And I'm just not used to that, yeah. right? Like I totally trust this human being. I can be totally vulnerable. Conflict is resolved quickly and effectively and compassionately. It's just so different than prior experiences that I've had to really surrender into that and learn to trust that I'm just not used to a healthy relationship for the most part. You know, taking responsibility yeah. for my part in, in, in that experience. And so sometimes it's, it's like healthy feels like there must be something wrong because mm. it's just uncharted territory. It's new. Yeah. And I've had to check myself, you know, as I said, mostly in the beginning, but just my mind would be like, wait, am I, is this cool? Like, is it supposed to feel like this? Wait, you're repairing with me? Yeah. You know? Yeah. That's been, my experience with Kylie has been similar. Like when we first started dating, I remember we had a fight. I forget what it was about but we were both laying on the bed and neither of us could talk. (laughs) Like we were so dysregulated and like I had thousands of words that wanted to be said, but I I just couldn't make the journey from here to here. 
there was like a lump in my throat, you know, and because there wasn't safety in sharing emotion, I'd maybe need, never seen it demonstrated in a calm way or a, a way that was seeking repair. You know, I, I consider myself like a recovering defender. I would get defensive a lot. And I remember learning about the antidote to defensiveness. And there's, in the Gottman's work, they call it the four horsemen of the apocalypse. No small title there. And it's four behaviors that are evident in all relationships that end in divorce. Now they're evident in all relationships in some way, but it's just when they're in high quantity. Like the Gottman's could listen to, I'm not sure if people have listened to um, or read the book from Malcolm, Malcolm Gladwell, uh, Blink. He talks about that research in there. They can listen to 20 hours of couple dialogue and predict with, I think it's over 94% accuracy if the couple will divorce. If they listen to just three minutes, they can predict with over wow. 80%. Wow. So that shows you how powerful language is, especially if we can take ownership, as you're talking about, for your side of the street. You know, like if, if I learn how to communicate in a better way, I completely change the pattern of communication. And the, the antidote to defensiveness is to say, I can see some truth in what you're saying. Oh my God. I remember the first time I was in an argument with a friend who's a therapist. And she said to me, you're being defensive. And I was like, oh, and I was like, I can see some truth in what you're saying. Oh God. It was like eating my shoe. But I was on the other side of a conversation I'd never been on. I'd always gotten defensive and shut down. I'd never actually received and just held it. And I was kind of in awe because as you were saying, like when something's unfamiliar, it would be so much easier to go back to my old pattern because even though it might be not constructive from a relational intimacy perspective, it's protecting me. All of these behaviors, which is criticisms, that statements like you always, you never, defensiveness, which pairs super well with that one, contempt, which is things like rolling of the eyes. It's actually the most predictive behavior of divorce is the rolling of the eyes. And, and contempt is really creating a hierarchy in the relationship. And if faces of disgust are part of contempt, so your partner is speaking and you're like, you know, like that kind of thing. Oh God, that sounds so brutal. It's like it, resig resignation, yes. right? And contempt is like, is maybe past almost resi the hardest. Yeah, it's to, like that's further past resignation. I don't know. I maybe. think they might. I don't even know. But because resignation is sort same. of like it's like a an apathy where you just don't give a shit anymore, you know. And maybe maybe you, contempt. There's a right, little, there's a little bit of anger behind it. Perhaps. Yeah, there's still like the other one is there's still a charge. helplessness, but like not a space of surrender, but a space. Of, yeah, you're right. Apathy. Yeah, you just where you don't you, even you've given up. And at that point, you know, like contempt and resignation are really hard, even, you know, if someone goes and sees a therapist, they're really hard to rescue people from. The other ones, you know, and the last one is stonewalling, shutting down, hanging up the phone, leaving, that kind of thing. And really almost all couples have a, a cycle that they do. In Mona Fishbane's work, she calls it a vulnerability cycle. So it's essentially like when you... When, when you do this, I do this, which makes you do this and me do this. So it's like, when you raise your voice, I shut down, which makes you get louder and me withdraw. And so all couples can kind of fill in the gaps. And it's usually, we all handle conflict very similarly. The irony is all of those four things, the four horsemen, they're all behaviors that are protect us. That's why they're there. And, and when we learn how to heal them, 
We end up in conversations we've never been in. We end up in spaces of love and connection and intimacy that we've actually been terrified of. I like to think of it like, you know, when we're children and you touch a stove and you burn your hand, you obviously change your behavior around the stove, ideally. And it's very similar emotionally. We get wounded. Everybody experiences childhood wounds. Really, a wound is described at its most, let's say, minimal, just having a need that doesn't get met. And so the idea isn't like to raise children that never experience suffering because then they have no resilience. They have no grit. They have no ability to self-regulate. And the, the real understanding is like, as you get older, is to be able to understand how do you like take what is these behaviors that are protecting us from being hurt again. That's why they're there. It's like, I think we create upper limits. And there are really places that hurt so much that I'm going to dance relationally in spaces that I know I can handle the pain. And I might even choose unavailable people so I never have to experience availability. And I used to think, mainly based on my experience when my engagement ended when I was 27, because people said I was afraid of commitment. I often thought like, are my behaviors because I'm afraid? Because I'm afraid to commit to someone? And I really started to learn that that behavior like running from love, running from good people is really because we don't trust love. And we don't trust people who are close to us. We don't trust ourselves. Will I have my own back in closeness? Will I have boundaries? Will I stand up for myself? Will I lose myself? And so much of my relational patterns were unconsciously never wanting to recreate a moment that I didn't even have capacity for in a lot of ways. And I, I think of a, a line from Ram Das, where he talks about how we're sort of being asked, if you're paying attention, being asked to hold so much suffering. And he talked about a family whose daughter had passed. And he said, all he could do was just acknowledge the immense amount of grief they were asked to hold. And he said, when you go through anything that is painful, a part of you has to die. And that is the part of you that couldn't bear the unbearable. And I think we so often avoid that mortality, that feeling that we have when we're experiencing a breakup, that we're, we don't know how to hold it. So we turn to addictions. You know, that's what I did when I went through a breakup and there was betrayal. I just found solace in the bottom of a pint glass, you know, and I, I found it through casual encounters. Because I knew that if they were casual, I could hold the, I had a say on the depth of the intimacy. And in some way, you know, intimacy, not only it feels good, but it also validates being desired. And, you know, that part of relationship, if we can learn what is our upper limit. And if you finish the sentence, when I love people, they, you'll usually find it's like, leave me, lie to me cheat on me, betray me. You know, it's some story if we allow it to come out. And it might, the other one we might do is when I love people, I lose myself, hide, betray myself, become a doormat. And these are both really informing us. <laughs> those are great questions. Right. Like you think- It's funny as you, as you ask Yeah, them, what are your answers to those? maybe former 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 answers formally oh my god yeah yeah like now mine is show up 
I'm generally a pretty easygoing guy, but I do have one huge pet peeve in the health and wellness industry, which is the fact that people spend so much energy on diet fads while ignoring something that's just as bad as junk food, in my opinion. I'm talking about junk light, blue flickering light to be specific. Blue light, meaning any light that looks white at night, trashes your melatonin levels and thus your sleep. But melatonin does way more than help you sleep. Melatonin is the body's most powerful antioxidant, and it's also your most potent endogenous anti-cancer molecule. And light flicker sucks because it can cause neurological issues like headaches, migraines, and even photosensitive epilepsy. And if you want to know if you've got flicker, you can easily test the flicker of your bulbs by shooting a short slow-motion video. If, when you watch it back, the light flashes on and off, you've got flicker. Not good, but fixable. Lucky for us, our homies over at Blue Blocks made some bulbs that only emit red light. So zero blue, green, yellow, or orange light. Just pure red, which is optimal for melatonin production, and their bulbs don't flicker. Additionally, the Lumi Sleep Bulbs do not run on Wi-Fi or Bluetooth, which means very low EMF readings, if any at all. These bulbs are just badass. They did it right. I use them strategically all over our house, mostly in table lamps, since light source positioning is also important. Think of your nighttime lighting as a campfire, warm light at eye level, not overhead, if possible. This is what we've evolved to do. So if you're ready to ditch your blue light, get over to blueblocks.com lifestylist and use the coupon code lifestylist to save 15%. That's B-L-U-B-L-O-X dot com slash lifestylist. And the code is also lifestylist. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't remember exactly the words that came to mind because I'm also listening to the next thing you're saying. But yeah, I was like, when I allow someone to love me or when I allow myself to love someone, it's just like, it's reciprocal and awesome and feels totally yeah. safe, you know? Yeah, now. Yeah. For me, that was but I'm 51. Now you know I'm 43. What I'm this is like yeah. maybe a couple of years, you know, in, in my current relationship that I've had that experience. But yeah, it's, I don't know. I think the, that cat and mouse thing that we were talking about earlier of that perceived compatibility of the avoidant and addict, you know, just in the vernacular that's right. kind of common to psychology and relational psychology, maybe those would have been my answers is being the avoidant and feeling trapped and they're yeah. too needy and like, you know, any means to avoid vulnerability because underneath that experience of being the one that's pushing away and running away and shutting down and, and making myself unavailable to a certain degree of intimacy underneath that is actually a vulnerability and a fear of being abandoned and heard and abused uh -huh. and all of the things. Right. So it's like, the, the person in that role perceives to have perhaps more power than the one who's doing the chasing, the more addictive, needy pursuer that's trying to get past the barriers of the unavailable person. But it's like, if you really excavate between or underneath both of those dynamics, it's kind of the same stuff under there. It's the exact same stuff. You know, it's right. like... They're just both strategies to avoid pain. Okay, there you go. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah and... It, it, that's exactly they from a compassionate lens they're a way you know like in the constructs of attachment style that anxious the avoidant and then they're secure and you think about it like the underlying characteristic of a secure attachment is my partner's needs matter as much as my own not more than my own which would be more anxious not less than my own which would be more avoidant and you know really uh, in the literature on 
there's a book called Attached that really looks at attachment styles. And there's a, numerous other books. And in them, what's interesting is the conversation about anxious people is like, man, people haven't been showing up for you. Like, you just need to find a secure person. Shit will be awesome. And then it's like, here's what avoidance is. Good luck. <laughs> like, there's <laughs> not really a lot of advice for avoidance. But you think like in the work of Sarah Baldwin, who's a somatic therapist, she talks about how with anxious people, their invitation is to learn how to self-regulate because they've never learned that. And for avoidant people, it's actually to learn how to co-regulate, how to sit with, like we're co-regulating right now, that to sit with someone else and experience co-regulation, to trust the nervous system of another person. It's amazing how all this is happening on such a plane that we often don't even understand till we begin to understand it. That's why somatic work is, is so important. It's like, it's important to understand things psychologically, patterns, so we can cerebrally sort them. But you still have to do the work that trains the body to see relationships differently. And behaviors like me not pursuing someone who normally I would have pursued who might be more toxic. I'm actually recoding my nervous system in that. I'm teaching myself, oh, when, when that behavior shows up, I've got my back. Like there's such a beautiful thing that's occurring there. Yeah, it's that, that anxious, anxiety, as I said earlier, is really the fear of space and avoidance is the fear of no space. And when you can learn to stand still and not you know, ride that wave when you want to pursue whatever that texting or whatever it might be, for the other person who wants distance, that's hard. Like the ideal is like in relationship, what often happens, conflict happens and someone says, hey, I need to talk about this. And the other person says, I don't want to talk about it. <laughs> and they might hang up the phone. They might leave the house. They might leave the relationship. The rule that has to occur for all couples is that, hey, maybe now might not be a good time, but if you need space to process, you have 24 hours. That's the maximum. And you're the one who has to come back. And what that teaches the person who is afraid of that space or the rejection or the abandonment is to learn how to regulate themselves, but also create a different story, which is when someone needs space, they come back. You know, so often in relationship, we threaten the relationship. Like if this happens again, I'm leaving. But that completely destabilizes the safety. You know, if every time you have conflict, your partner threatens the relationship, then there is no safety. And what it will do is make it so no conflict ever gets explored because the fear will be that you leave. And then what happens is, is you have two people, especially the person who's wanting to initiate dialogue, you have two people who aren't actually in the relationship. They're just fake versions of themselves. The ones who want to maintain connection to other over connection to self. And really, I think this is sort of the underarching theme of how we relate to everything, including our medical choices, including whatever it might be, speaking our truth, and again, truth being subjective. That we, you know, Gabor Mate talks about this, that we have two needs as humans. We have the need to be authentic and to self-express, and we have the need to belong. And when authenticity and self-expression threaten belonging, belonging usually wins. You think of like the evolutionary implications of that. Like if I tell you the truth, I might not be part of this group anymore. Think about how religion weaponizes that. Think about how information is weaponized that way. Think about the language that's used by leaders about what choice you make. 
and whether that infers that you're a good person or not a good person. All of these are psychological strategies to manipulate behavior. That's why I've been, it's had been such a hard time for me observing what's been happening because the language that is inferred is actually trying to weaponize shame. And, you know, when we can, on a macro scale, we can see that happening, but on a micro scale where that happens is our inability to disagree and still love one another. You know, we think successful dialogue navigated well is that we agree, but ultimately for the person who's in the first person, it's that you agree with me, <laughs> you know, the outcome of this dialogue is not me agreeing with you. That sounds horrible. Yeah. You know, <laughs> welcome well, to Twitter. <laughs> yeah. Twitter is a whole other world. I don't know that you can, well, sometimes you get the odd experience, but mm -hmm. that like, can two truths coexist and be met with reverence and respect? Because you and I, us and our partners, we can experience the same event completely differently through a different lens. Look at how many people are experiencing life's current events, how we can experience, and it's through the lens of our traumas, our social conditionings, all the things, all the unconscious. What does conflict mean to us? How do we see it explored? Blah, blah, blah. And when we can realize that there is space for both your experience and mine and the actual job of us as friends, as couples, is to actually be curious about your world. And gosh, you know, one of the most important qualities in successful couples, but I'd say any relationship, is to be open to the influence of your partner. And, you know, that, I mean, that's something that we're being invited globally to learn how to practice. That's why I think like what's going on in the world today has really um, challenged our friendships, challenged our families. You know, I say to people like, if you lost a family member because they voted for someone you didn't like, like go get them back. Like how weird is it that we live in a world that we can't disagree? Like, yeah. And then we cancel people who make us emotionally uncomfortable. There's or, no psychological safety. Or perhaps we cancel people who trigger us to make ourselves <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, emotionally yeah. uncomfortable. That's right? the right. Because of our, our perception and positionality that we impose upon what they're saying, doing, or, or feeling, right? Yeah, and like... It, because we cheat. don't like the feeling that's coming up through the lens we have through the yeah. So we attach we attach it to them as being the source or causation of what we're experiencing when really it's truly just our own attachment to our perception of it. Right. And this is like, I think so many God, there's so many things you're touching on. I'm like, don't interrupt, Luke. Let's uh, do there's it. Like a, no, there's go, like, go, there's go, so go. many threads I could pull to unravel this beautiful sweater uh, that I think of is providing hopefully so much value to, value to people. It is to me yeah. learning new things and also just affirming things that I felt like, yeah, that's probably right. But I think so much of the relating and the ability to resolve conflict in a healthy manner and, and to be able to actually move forward with someone in intimacy is so dependent on the words that we use. And this is something I'm continually yeah. working on. In fact, I, someone was on my mind, just a, a friend, a male friend. And there were some things that I was seeing about his choices and behavior. And I felt 
beholden to share my perspective with him. Not a judgment, but just like, ooh, I think he's kind of going a little off the deep end here. And as a friend, I, I, I felt a sense of responsibility to speak my truth. But I, I really wanted to allow him to, it's kind of someone that I mentor in, in a sense, a friend, but a friend that comes to me a lot for advice. And it was really, it was a great practice in me being very deliberate with my words. So rather than saying like, hey, I see you doing this and that, and I think that's wrong, even just a, a subtle shift of my perception of how you're going about doing this and this and this is this. And again, that's how I'm perceiving this to be true. It doesn't mean that it is true. It means that from my lens and my vantage point, this is where you're going and how you're going there and what could possibly be a negative consequence. Yeah. You know, and, and even being very deliberate and, and forthright and like prefacing what I had, I felt like I needed to say with, Hey, I want to invite you just to take a moment and really open your mind and open your heart and know that I unconditionally love you as a friend, no matter how you receive this information and no matter how much of it lands as true for you or not. But out That's of a beautiful. sense of responsibility to myself and, and sensing that I'd been avoiding this conversation because it's uncomfortable and I don't want to hurt them or have them feel rejected or I don't want to be rejected, et cetera. All those things that can go wrong when there's, you know, like a somewhat uncom potentially uncomfortable truth shared, but just preface it by saying, Hey man, it's possible that your ego could flare up a little bit in a couple minutes with, what, with what I'm about to share, which is just my perspective. And it's not necessarily true, but if you could hear me out, it would mean a lot to me because then I don't, I don't have to sit with this right? and feel like ah, I should have said something when the thing goes wrong that I think could go wrong, you know? But it's like, man, it's so fun learning in, in all forms of relationship, learning how to communicate in ways that can bypass that, that defense, that characteristic that you described earlier. And also just having a malleable mind and that I, I know at any given time that I'm only seeing something from the position that only I can see it from. Mm. Right. And I might feel like I'm right and I'm pretty damn sure I'm right. <laughs> but again, I'm the one determining whether I'm right or not. So it's, it's, it's almost impossible to be truly objective about anything I want to communicate with someone, 100%. you know, and, and developing relationships wherein romantic and otherwise, wherein that becomes the modus operandi. Like that's just how you speak and you're mindful of the words that you use. And you mentioned something earlier, this dynamic of conflict that is so destructive and it's such a gnarly pattern. Well, when you did this, you made me feel blank. Right. You know, that like absolving oneself of responsibility for one's inner experience. And, and how much they can be informed by their inner experience. Yeah. So in that situation, it, you know, Mark, when you came in and you knocked over the water glass on my new carpet, you made me feel angry. Another way to state the same experience could be, yeah, it's really interesting. Can I share something with you, a perspective with you? Mark, I noticed within myself that when you knocked that water glass over, I started feeling these uncomfortable sensations of anger. And then I kind of looked at that and and there was a sense of fear of loss because I just paid a lot of money for this rug and so on yeah. and so on, right? But coming at everything with a sense of like, this is my experience for which I am willing and able to claim responsibility without putting 
my feelings in someone else's lap, you know, like yeah. you can't make me feel anyway. No one on the internet can make me feel anything. When Except I go for that one troll. But yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah. When I go through TSA, this is a big trigger for me is I'm just have authority issues and nonsensical things that are irrelevant or that I perceive to be irrelevant, really annoy me. And someone controlling me and telling me what to do and search, step over there and open your bag and put on the thing on your face and all this. And I just traveled. I think that's why it comes to mind. And I was noticing like, I'm getting judgy and annoyed at the whole system and the representatives of the system with their stupid little badge and, you know, all <laughs> yeah. this thing. And I'm getting pissed. And it's like, even though I'm getting pissed, I'm still having the awareness that I'm doing it to myself. Right. So and, true. You know, it's kind of like, you know, what would an enlightened master do? Enter your chosen enlightened master. How would their experience of going through TSA differ from mine? because of mm -hmm. my self-righteousness and my sensitivities and my uh, um, capacity to be irritated by someone else's behavior. Like, what if I totally change my perception of those interactions with, wow, man, it's so cool. You're doing your job so well because your boss told you to do this thing and you're following orders perfectly. To keep <laughs> us yeah, safe. Yeah, you know, yeah. Whatever. You know, and, and everything relationally, I think, is subject to that radical shift in our perspective. You know, yeah. it's like, think of how many things can be diffused and so many resentments resolved and just conflicts in general by simply by the one thing, which I'm having a very long winded experience of explaining is just accepting responsibility for how I feel. Yeah. And to think even in so much of our suffering is the rejection of the moment that it should be different than it is. Yes. You know, and, uh, you know, that of course goes back to so much Buddhist philosophy of not being attached to a different outcome, again, relationally so important. Because then we're rejecting the truth and then we can't act upon the truth. You know, when we don't like a truth, it doesn't make the truth not real. It just makes us not want to look at it. It's much like when there's relational dysfunction and people don't want to turn towards it. It gets communicated in delayed texts, unreliability, shortness, you know, reactivity, all the things that are trying to say something so much greater you know, and that's why all of our feelings, all of our emotions are really just evoking information. And we've been taught to say, well, sadness or anger are bad and happiness and joy and the excitement are good. When really even that construct of there being a hierarchy of emotion makes us want to avoid certain ones as opposed to be informed by them. And, you know, imagine if in that dialogue where you express your experience of me spilling water on the carpet, which I haven't done yet, so I hope that doesn't no, happen haven't. in the future, is to... <laughs> I'm going to manifest you knocking your green juice over yeah, on my, my green on water. My cream carpet. Let me just move that over. And imagine if my response was to say, I can totally understand why you might feel that way. Like, I know that you just invested in this carpet, and what I hear you saying is that it's an important thing to you, and that maybe in some ways you feel like I might not be respecting it. Is that fair to say? And, and you know, like... Really, so much of the solution to navigating conflict is to be curious, you know, and to validate. Because I might get defensive, like, I didn't mean to knock the water over on your new carpet. Like, oh, you got to spend so much money on carpet. Ooh, you know, like, instead of just being like, wow, yeah. And I remember when I first experienced that, although it was, you know, theoretically, I understood it. But when I first experienced it with a partner, with Kylie, I was like, wait, what? Like you're repairing and taking responsibility for your behavior. Whoa. Because so much of my over-functioning was to take responsibility for everything. 
and then feel resentful that I just took everything myself <laughs> and then feel like there's something wrong with me that they feel upset. So that must mean there's something wrong with me as opposed to disconnecting my worth from any of the circumstances. You know, like you talked earlier about when we're dating and we're, we're needing to orient around our values. It's true of everything. You know, like we should really know what our top three to five values are because everything in your life should orient around those. Your boundaries should fiercely protect what you value. And most people don't actually lay claim to their values because then if you were to do an audit of your behaviors and say, are they in alignment with my values? They often wouldn't be. Then you'd have to change your behaviors and then you'd pay attention to the feelings that were already telling you that you weren't in alignment with your values. And then we really wouldn't have as many reasons for addictions, right? Because like really the pain that we experience so often is the disconnection from the suffering that's created in the space between who we know ourselves to truly want to be and who we're actually being. And, you know, I think we're usually one or two giant decisions away from reuniting. But so much of our, our pain comes from childhood when we, when we actually begin to model a version of us that will get accolades, will create safety, will create connection. But we actually leave the essence of ourselves. And that's why I like relationally, so much of the invitation is, and the pain that we experience is to actually learn how to become that version, how to remember it. You know, I become as, you know, I used to think like give birth to it, but really it's remember it. Like remember our tenderness, remember our emotionality, remember the pains that we've had. And, you know, adult relationships and, and navigating conflict. I mean, God, what a beautiful thing when a story is proven different. But man, we're so attached to stories like life having to be, relationships having to be hard even making money, having to be hard. You know, like I grew up in the beginning of my childhood in some level of poverty. And then maybe we moved to like lower middle class and I never got anything I wanted when I was young. And I remember <laughs> that causing so much child, you know, like, am I enough? Like, why didn't I get this versus that? And I got hand-me-downs and all that kind of stuff. And then when it came to becoming an entrepreneur, it was so hard for me to charge for what I was doing because I didn't know how to hold on to money. And I also used to spend money incessantly because I never wanted to experience not getting the thing. So I didn't know how to sit in that feeling. And so it shows you how, as I said earlier, like your relationship to anything is just always informing you of where there's a belief that's sticky. Peter Crone talks about it being like you're your situations, your life, your circumstances are all showing you where you're not free. And I mean, I think relationships teach us that a lot. When we're coming up with our vision for a partner and, and we're dating and we've got, you know, some of those red flags and non-negotiables, what do you think is a way one could determine when those are valid versus when those are becoming an excuse to remain avoidant and protect ourselves, right? Like yeah. being, being too picky and too, too discerning, you know, and, and not opening ourselves up to the possibility of something existing outside of that. 
as a defense mechanism? Yeah, such a good question because especially avoiding people will identify as like independent or I just have high standards. And while that, of course, can be true, I think we need to check in with ourselves and say, are my standards walls? Are they actually walls? And I think somatically we'll know pretty quick if that's true. You know, like, do I push people away because by using discernment? And we'll get informed by that. Also, we'll get informed when we push someone away and we realize, like, maybe I walked away from something that was actually pretty good. And can we return to it? You know, so really it's just being able to play with it. We take it so seriously because we think, well, if this doesn't work or I push them away, then I've lost the person I always was meant to get because I, no, you're being informed by it. And in the future, you'll have the opportunity to potentially either with that person or someone else. Now you have a new skill set, And I don't think we often see it with that kind of grace, you know, that again, you're being invited to integrate the wisdom. Out of all of the incredible healing tools and gadgets I have around the house, there aren't many that I use every day. One brand that consistently makes it into my routine is Higher Dose. I usually start my day on their large infrared PEMF mat, which combines the powerful technology of infrared heat with PEMF for an incredible recharging experience. PEMF, if you don't know, stands for Pulsed Electromagnetic Field and it works by sending electromagnetic waves through your body at different frequencies to help your body's own recovery process. It's uh, relaxing while energizing at the same time, which is incredible. So I use the smaller mat here in the studio since it fits comfortably in an office chair or on the sofa and the regular size mat for meditating or napping. You can also do yoga on the big one if you were so inclined. And I'm also a longtime infrared sauna user, but they can be both bulky and expensive. So if you don't have the budget or the room for a full-size sauna, the Higher Dose Sauna Blanket is a game changer. It's portable and super easy to use and store when you're not using it. You just turn it on, put on some cotton clothing, wrap yourself up like a burrito, and sweat like crazy. The sauna blanket's got an amethyst layer to deepen the benefits of infrared, a tourmaline layer that generates negative ions, a charcoal layer to bind any pollutants that come out of your body, and a clay layer, which is balancing for the heat. So this is really cool stuff, and you can snatch yourself your very own infrared sauna blanket or PEMF mat at higherdose.com today. And if you use my exclusive promo code LUKE15 at checkout, you'll save 15% off. That's higherdose.com, D-O-S-E. And the promo code again is LUKE15. We have a question kind of along those lines from a listener on Instagram who goes by Andream Onier. <laughs> Hi, Andream Onier. <laughs> There's a few underscores in there. And I often ask for questions and then I just neglect to ask them of the guests, but it, it, <laughs> it reminded me of this. It's around over-identification and labeling. For example, uh, narcissist, codependent, trauma bonding attachment style and how it can make it more difficult to date because self-labeling reduces confidence in self-worth. So I, I think it's like if we're, I think what she's getting at is if, if we're sort of assessing what some of our issues are and we're too strongly identifying with those labels or you know, putting those labels too strongly on someone else as if they can't evolve out of that, what are the dangers of that being limiting to our experience. Well, I think anytime you attach an identity to yourself, 
although that can help systemize the world or organize it, like you're like, oh, I'm more prone to anxious attachment. Maybe I'm more prone to avoiding, or maybe I do both. The challenges we often then are like, oh, that's my anxious attachment. That's my, and those, whenever you say I am anything, you become it. So as opposed to saying, like a part of me sometimes is prone to anxious behavior or to avoiding behavior. So self-labeling, I would say, anytime that occurs, often creates a prison of the identification. Although it creates certainty because we feel like, oh, now it's organized me in a way that makes sense to my world. Knowing that you can take any relational behavior and learn a different skill. Like anyone can learn how to become secure. Anyone can learn how to be a great communicator. These are not like skills reserved for just specific people, <laughs> you know? And granted, some of us might've got dealt a different hand and have less to overcome, but all of it can be overcome. And labeling like, I mean, the word narcissist has been super, definitely overprescribed. It's very trendy at the moment. Yeah, and codependent, you know, truthfully, almost all of us have codependent behaviors. We inherited codependent relational structures from our ancestors. And there's a difference between codependency and interdependency. Codependency is that in some way the self is validated by the other. Like I need you to need me in order for me to feel needed. You know, you often see codependent dynamics when someone's trying to heal another person, you know, the addict, right? And that'd be the classic codependent dynamic. Someone's trying to get them to quit. And when they finally quit, the person who's trying to get them to quit doesn't have a job anymore because their addiction was to another person and also avoiding their own self-work, which probably would have had them walk away, which is, of course, the answer to most healing of addiction is to finally say, to claim self. You know, you watch interventions and interventions are like, we will no longer tolerate this. Here's the standard. And the person is invited to sovereignty. And this other person is constructing sovereignty. And we're saying, hey, we trust that you have the adult skills and the resources. And if not, we'll provide them. Here's what the structure looks like. But we trust that you can grow up. And the same thing is being invited because you think of the behavior of chasing and trying to fix people is really a young behavior. It's again, that person's being invited to grow up. And really the most healthy relationships are ones that celebrate both the independence of the individual and their dreams, their passions. You know, I think the difference between compromise, which is of, of course very important in relationship, the difference between compromise and self-abandonment is that compromise, although can feel challenging, you know is expansive to the relationship and to the self. Self-abandonment doesn't feel that way. You know, it feels like you're losing, you know, like, like in this exchange, you're losing. And you might be losing something very dear to yourself. Compromise feels more like there might be some loss, but we know that it is for the greater construct of the relationship and for the self. And what's when we look at how relationships are often places, you know, where you think someone gets out of a relationship, all of a sudden they start pursuing all the things they love. And like, why don't we do that in a relationship? You know, I'm sure like your experience with, with your wife, my experience with Kylie is that the brighter and more powerful she gets, the brighter and more powerful our connection gets and more powerful I get. You know, but I think we often have this idea of power dynamics that there's an exchange. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like even in pursuit, there's an exchange. Like don't text him back, you'll have more power. 
it's like, as soon as you're there, you're in the wrong place because you're thinking about what can you get? What can you give? What are you losing? I don't, there shouldn't be loss. You know, like my partner informs me to be a much better man. And without her reflections, I wouldn't see so many of the things I can't see because you know, like you were talking about, like our perspective is our perspective. And when my experience, like when a woman or a friend really loves you and they tell you how you can grow, I mean, I never used to think that was a gift. <laughs> Just so we're clear. <laughs> yeah. I don't know about you, but when I was younger and I got feedback, I wasn't yeah. like, this is a gift of my evolution. I was more like, uh, what about you? <laughs> you know? Right, right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's funny. I just texted Allison for her opinion on something earlier. It was a piece of micro advice, but I was like, I don't know. Maybe she sees something here that I don't see. And she was like, yeah, it's kind of, I wouldn't do that. Yeah. You know, I was like, oh God, thank God. But in, in no way did I feel threatened or diminished or anything. I was like, oh, thank God I have eyes and ears that I can trust about some big decisions. And some of yes. them are just small throughout the day. You know, hey, what do you think of this? Am I missing something? And to have someone who um, wholeheartedly has your best interest at heart, mm -hmm. right? And and maybe has some wisdom that's available. But yeah, that's that's a very new thing, you know? Because the outside of that is things are kind of transactional and win-lose, right? And there's like point scoring in relationships and always that defense offense kind of game rather than two people boosting each other up to the maximum of their potential however they can in their own individual way you know because there's i guess if two people have a certain degree of security within themselves then you're not diminished by someone else's shine it's yeah. in, it's inspiring and encouraging it's so interesting because that's not you know often what we see you know, to get back to the use of the word narcissist, I find it's often placed upon people who have avoidant behaviors. I would say that narcissism in its truest expression is obviously very painful to be in relationship with and for the person who is, although they're disassociated from the experience that's the protective mechanism of narcissism. You know, so when people have really experienced it, it's incredibly painful. So I don't want to diminish it. And we often code a lot of avoidant behavior as narcissism because, you know, a lot of avoidant behavior sort of masquerades as high self-confidence behavior. Like when people get too close, they're needy, you know, that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. They're a little more unavailable. They might not text back as, as often or whatever it might be. And they might ghost because they don't have the capacity to hold someone else's rejection because they don't know how to explore their own, you know. And what we were saying earlier just about that codependent, interdependent dynamic. I mean, that is, as soon as you become not codependent in your romantic relationships, you'll realize where you are codependent everywhere. Anytime you silence your voice to keep the peace, that's codependency. Don't get me wrong, sometimes that's for survival. That's a, that's a really good definition. I mean, it's so simple, right? Yeah, because codependency can be ambiguous. And, and as you said earlier, often associated with the addict and the person trying to save the addict. Yeah. But I, I've always kind of looked at it and I've worked on this a lot within myself is like how much of the way I feel is dependent on how the person that I'm with feels. Oh, me too. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's like, can I have an upset wife who, you know, is, is struggling with some emotional issue at the moment? Like, 
can I still feel okay and that I'm my own person or am I getting enmeshed in that experience? Like, oh, now I have to feel that way too, right? Or can I actually just stand on my side and have empathy and compassion for that person but not necessarily have to share in the experience? It's that boundary thing, right? Where there's like such porous boundaries and codependency that whatever your person's in, you're in with them, (laughs) but not, not in compassion in like, there's no ability to have a healthy separation between the two entities. You know, it just becomes eh, all, all sort of intertwined in complicated ways emotionally that you can't separate yourself from. Yeah. I wasn't able to do that either. And, you know, like the other day I had a friend give me feedback that they were hurt by something that I, I didn't contact them. So they were hurt. And I was like so open to hearing their experience, but I wasn't going to take responsibility for something that wasn't mine. You know, and I never would have been able to discern that difference when I was younger. I think it's when someone else takes responsibility for their behavior, it draws a beautiful line between you and them. When you have a boundary around what's yours and what's not. Like that's why when you know who you are and you've done an inventory on your values and your behaviors and where you need to improve and all that kind of stuff, you're able, when someone says, this is true about you, you're able to say whether it is or is not. And I think that might be the most important skill set to develop in social media. Because how many strangers are just delivering their opinion on whatever you say? I'm sure you experience that a lot. You know, I do too. And being able to tell the difference between feedback that's constructive and feedback that's projective. And that's hard, because that even that that idea of like, I don't want to post this because I'm afraid that's codependency again. You know, when you say yes, when you want to say no, codependency, you know, when you try to fix things for people, codependency, like we're not so often in life, we try to save people from experience of feelings because we don't know how to sit in those feelings ourselves. But as soon as I learned the richness of grief, you know, when Kylie and I in our relationship 1.0, we call it. We took a breakup for nine months, but we were broken up. Like it was over. And we call it now that we reunited. We call it a sacred pause. And in that time, there was such a, there was such a healing of selves. Like in order to leave the relationship, both of us had to choose ourselves. And so there was such a healing of that. And yeah, you know, I'm forever reminded of the gifts that come from that grief. Because when we broke up, Man, I like you were talking about it earlier, you know, everything in the world feels like it sort of comes to an end. And I confronted death in a way I never had because this death of this relationship was so much. And I found it was the first time I ever went through a breakup sober. And that was interesting because I felt like I was dealing with all the other ones I didn't do sober. And I found so much richness in that breakup, like in my own growth, in learning about the darkness, learning about the edges, learning about death, learning about my fear of dying, of not being here, of not sharing this. And because I learned so much from that, when someone's in immense grief, I just want to know how can I walk alongside them? Because I think sometimes we need to know there's a hand that will pull us out if it gets a little too dark or a little too hard. And, but I won't save them from it. Like I won't, sorry, I won't rob them from the experience of the richness of it. And I think in codependency, but this is true of relationship, 
we don't, if we don't know the value of a feeling, we'll try to save people from a feeling, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. It's like a kind of an emotional enabling. Yeah. Right. Of trying to pad someone's world for them. Right. You know, and when and, they need that. Yeah. And robbing them of, of their sense of sovereignty and, and also karma. You know, I think right. karma plays into things a lot more than we would like to think that there are certain experiences that each of us have in some way signed up for yeah. that are going to be uncomfortable or painful, but are inevitable at yeah. some point in the journey. Right. And you have to look at. Yeah. Yeah, I know that a lot of things that have played out in my life that were difficult were absolutely karmically orchestrated and that, that they would have come about at some particular point. In other words, there was no avoiding them or no having other people codependently save me or protect me from having those experiences. Thinking in terms of you know mentors and advisors that I've had that say, hey, I can offer you, you know, this, this point of view, but you're gonna have to go through it yourself. You're going to have to feel whatever there is to feel so that you don't have to keep feeling it over and over right. again because you have to dismantle the pattern that's, you know, perpetuating this un, unresolved issue, you know? Yeah. It's a gift to just stand by someone's side and, you know, just allow them to experience whatever they need to experience. Yeah, there's this line from, that makes me think of this line from Francis Weller, who's a psychotherapist and calls himself a soul activist. And he says that we spend our lives seeking belonging. And at some point we have to become the place of welcome. Wow. And I think of like so much of our journey is this like adolescent adventuring and, and making mistakes and all the things that come with, with life. But the adult really says, what are these teaching me? Mm -hmm. You know, you think of like how our communities are modeled. Our communities generally don't model restoration. You know, I forget what tribe it is, but there's one where when someone makes a mistake, they actually have them sit in the middle of a circle and everyone tells them the things they love about them. And I just think about how powerful that would be if that's how, you know, we turn towards someone in our community who went through a divorce or, or cheated or lied or whatever. And we reminded them that they're loved, but we also asked them, what can they teach us? You know, we exile so many parts of ourselves. We reject parts of ourselves that we're ashamed of, as opposed to asking those parts, what can they teach us? And I think that's modeled through the way, like cancel culture is certainly not restorative justice. And I'm not saying there's not a time to hold people accountable, of course, but anything done in extreme is not constructive to learning. And like what we then see is this model of if you make a mistake, you're going to be exiled from the community and then we will hide our mistakes. We'll live in shame. We all have skeletons or whatever that even means for someone, but things that we are not really wanting to look at or for other people to know about us. And <laughs> when we can't turn towards that. Right. And then that the shame of that awareness is going to perpetuate likely perpetuate more of that type of behavior. Right. Right. And then more addictions to heal, yeah, yeah. To, to cover up. The thing that. about that, you know, I mentioned, we've mentioned cancel culture a couple of times. I think the thing that irks me about this social phenomenon that's so prevalent now is that it negates the prospect of redemption. Right. I mean, I think about 
God, all of the iterations of myself that, I mean, from one perspective is like mortifying uh, without the compassion for oneself and going, wow, okay. (laughs) Right. At least you're not that way anymore. But God, had I not been given the opportunity to evolve, I mean, I wouldn't be the person I am today that I'm increasingly learning to love more, right? Mm -hmm. And because I'm loving the person that I'm becoming more and more, my behavior toward other people becomes more kind and more loving and more inclusive and all of all of those things but to be canceled and again you know not that some people don't need to be held accountable for their behavior obviously and there's systems in place however faulty they might be they're they're there justice you know i mean retribution these are fundamental principles that have their place but it's like god i feel so bad when people get canceled because oftentimes the cancellation is due to something retroactively that was so far in the past. And it's so obvious that that person has transcended the level of consciousness at which they behaved inappropriately, right? right? They're literally right. not the same person anymore. Well, and the culture is not the same in the circuit as yeah, the systemic too. biases and yeah. all the things that were not good at the time, right. but informed what was okay. And it's like holding history accountable for today's awarenesses. Right. That's really hard to do. I, you know, I think of my relationship to alcohol when I was 22, 23. And, you know, I would, I could easily look back with judgmental eyes that I was trying to numb pain. And then what brought, you know, what that then brought into my life, as opposed to seeing that I was doing the best I could. It might not have been through the lens of what is available to me today. It would not be acceptable. Yeah. But at the time, it was incredibly acceptable because it was, I was taught how to handle pain from society, which is don't. Like who modeled to me being able to learn from that betrayal? You know, I, when I hear people who had parents who introduced them to like Wayne Dyer and shit, I'm like, well done. I don't even, you know, like, and I had a great childhood, you know, but I wasn't informed to, be curious about personal growth in a lot of ways, not in some ways. My dad was very, and mom, especially my dad, was very introspective into my behaviors. Very, I remember I broke the law once, only twice, because I was the worst criminal in history. And thankfully I did it before I was 18, but I like stole something. And my dad, when he got home, which I got the old, wait till your dad gets home, you know, you can talk to him about this, which I was like, oh, fuck. (laughs) And I'll never forget, he asked me why I did it. And I said, because I needed money. And he then gave me jobs to do around the house and paid me for them. Like chores that weren't mine, but like could have been. But that's how he handled it with total unconditional love. And I've always been grateful for that because it did model this like curiosity. I was terrified that my I was going to be, I think I did get grounded for a bit, rightfully so. But I'll never forget that because I really felt like he listened and then he showed me that you can have solutions that are different. And I had an uncle who was a drug addict and uh, he committed suicide when I was 20, something like that. And I remember I asked him for advice after I did that. I was sitting on the stairs on our front lawn with him and he said to me, you know, Mark, Sometimes the easiest way isn't always the best way. 
which I, he probably could have used that advice <laughs> later, but I'll never forget that because it really showed me that so often I chose the easy path because it was, it felt less friction. It felt frictionless or it had less friction. But I can now say without a doubt that anytime I've chosen what is perceived to be easier, there's always a much greater cost. And although the long route or whatever it might be is, is maybe more challenging or involves more, more, more discomfort, it's always richer and it always gets to the place that you want to get to. But you, you know, it's, I, I like that saying that the juice is in the journey. You know, it's like who you become along that path is actually, you know, like life's challenges are imperative to prepare you. You know, I think Abraham Hicks says that when you make a request, be careful because the universe will organize to get you there and you might not like the path. And I think about that with love. You know, we say, I want deep love. I want a beautiful relationship. <laughs> and then, of course, you're invited to heal all the things that are in the way. And so we get upset that the pattern, we're the victim of this same pattern, not realizing that what is staring us in the face is, is the exact thing we need to change in order to create the thing that we say we desire. And so, you know, if we could turn towards it more like a warrior with, with gentleness and, and be fierce about what we're wanting to pursue, having that level of integrity that says, are my behaviors in alignment with what I want to create? And if you had asked me that at different iterations of my life, I would have said no. But a rule I made when I was in my mid-30s, which would have been really useful coming way earlier than that, was that I would always live at my highest level of knowledge. Like as soon as I learned an awareness or had an epiphany or someone gave me feedback, that I would integrate that behavior into my life. And that's probably been the most hard <laughs> rule to make of my life, but what it does is it really honors every one of those experiences. And then you can release painful experiences because they've actually informed who you are today, if that, if that makes sense. Yeah. I think about integrating lessons as building integrity, hmm. right? Like becoming whole is only possible when you, when you accept everything that's available in your experience, right? So true. You know, you're, 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 you're filling the gaps in. Yeah, you're integrating, you know, you're, mm. you're bringing these experiences together as you learn, and then you become more solidified in, in your integrity in so doing, you know. I, if I don't look at my life in that way, it feels victimizing, Yes, right? It's like, ah, why did this happen to me? And that happened to me and that happened to me, right? But it's like to be able to extrapolate wisdom from those experiences that weren't preferential makes me more whole in who I am. And also then too, I think you begin to value your integrity more, right? Because of the sense of stability that it gives you and mm. I find too, when I face um, a challenge or I'm in the midst of a challenge, even though emotionally it could be uncomfortable, it's like, I already know that this is now becoming part of my repertoire, right? It's already yes. it's becoming part of my skill set, And it's like, oh God, this hurts like hell. But I know that it's not in vain that I'm going to take this experience and integrate it into who and what I am. And it's likely that I'll have this experience less frequently, if not, maybe never again. 
because mm. the lesson has presented itself and I've been like, ah, this hurts, but I'm going to squeeze all the juice out of this experience and make it part of my makeup. Yeah, to be in the experience and already looking at it. Yeah, yeah. Is like... Instead of having to wait like five years later, like, oh, okay, <laughs> yeah. I see why I lost that career or the girl or, you know, whatever it was. It's like, how about if, how about if we invite ourselves to feel the feelings as uncomfortable as they are, but actually extrapolate the lesson in real time while you're there. Isn't that to be so present, right? Like I think what you're yeah, inviting yeah. is for us to be fully present. You know, and you said about, in a way, when we do that, we have maybe more reverence or admiration for our integrity. I think because we can look at it. Like without, you know, I think, I remember someone asking me, are you in integrity with your potential? And I was like, oh man, no. <laughs> like, because I know one. what's possible for me. Yeah. And I know that's available in this moment. Why am I not stepping I in? I don't like that question. <laughs> I didn't like it at all. You know, I remember like, someone said to me, like, you can be addicted to your dreams or your excuses, but not both. And I was like, fuck off. Like, it yeah. was like one of those kicks in the gut, you know, yeah. much like that one. Yeah, that's a good one. There definitely was something here on my list. And I love when I don't have to look at my list, that there's just such an abundance of wisdom sitting across from me that it just happens. But I think something that could be really useful for our listeners is this idea or perhaps some tools around conscious uncoupling. So we've talked mm. a lot about you know, how to, how to get into a relationship that we crave and some tools for managing and cultivating and enriching those relationships. But inevitably, there, there could come a time for many of us, well, there definitely will come a time with some relationships that the end has come for whatever mm. reason. And I think that because it can be so painful that many of us lack the ability to separate from someone without causing more harm to them or to ourselves. And so I, I'm fascinated by this idea of, I guess it's just kind of a term that people use, conscious uncoupling, right? Where there's a friendliness and a respect in, in the way that you exit. I know in, in my relationships of the past, many weren't exited by either party <laughs> in that way. Sometimes not by me, sometimes not by the other person. But this, I think, is kind of the holy grail of respecting the passage of relationships and, and the impermanence of everything, right? The, mm. the temporary nature of all of our experiences in life. But perhaps if if you might speak to that, even if someone's, in the middle of a breakup or had one recently, they can see maybe some ways that they could have done it differently. And also someone might just put this in their tool belt because we all think our relationship or we hope that it's going to last forever. I mean, I can't imagine breaking up with my person. Like I really literally, it's one of the worst things I could ever imagine happening, but I'm sure we all think that. And then at some point dynamics change and people evolve and things go their way. So what are some tools that people can use when one or more party has decided, you know, this version of our relationship is, has got to end? Yeah, I think the first invitation is to turn towards those circumstances with grace. That's not often what we do. I, like you, didn't leave relationships attending to their closure or the feelings that needed to be felt or the words that needed to be spoken. And I've had that experience where I didn't get the space to do that. And that's really incredibly painful. I think the 
we need to recognize when it's actually safe to do so. Because a lot of us will will stay in relationships that are toxic by continuing to like play out the same, you know, I'm going to repair, I never get it. You know, the idea even that closure comes from someone else's behavior is not actually how closure occurs. Closure occurs through us, right? Like as soon as we attach it to someone else, it's not available. And so it's just to be mindful that we're, if we're placing it on something else, it's, it, we've already lost the power that we have and responsibility that we have over our own heart. When Kylie and I went through our breakup, that was the first time as I was like mature enough and, and aware enough and, and maybe had enough tools to be able to have conversations that were incredibly hard. And we decided to do a closing ceremony. And I'd never done oh. that. And I remember telling a friend, he's like, you're going to do what? Wow. <laughs> and so. I'm like, this sounds cool, but also terrifying. Oh, man. You know, I think of at the time, I probably felt very similar to how you feel. That concept of it was, of us ending was so there that I couldn't avoid it. And when it ended, I was like, how do we leave this with grace? I remember my friend Yoda, great name for the advice she gave. She said that, you should leave your house. You should leave your relationship as you would leave a house. Like fix it up, repair it. Oh, wow. I thought that was so beautiful. Hire a cleaning crew. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I, so I Googled closing ceremony and other people had been foolish enough to do this thing. And we put together what was our version of it. We lit a fire. We made it very um, ceremonial. And the first question we answered was, what were we most grateful for about the relationship and the other person? And, oh man, that was so hard because your like heart is so open and there's an ending and neither of us wanted it, but it was necessary. And I actually do remember sitting in the car before I was to go in and have this experience. And this is just the two of you. There's no facilitator of no. sorts. Okay. Although it'd be great with a facilitator. I think if, if, it's a hard space to hold. And I remember thinking to myself, I don't want to do this. And then I asked myself, do I not want to do this because I'm scared and it's going to ask more of me than I know exists? Or do I not want to do this because I genuinely just don't want to do this right now? And the answer was the first one, unfortunately. <laughs> so <laughs> I walked in and the second question was, what were our favorite memories? Like, Oh my God, brutal. It makes me want to cry. Right Dude, now. it was like the hardest. That, that honestly was the hardest part. That's what gets you. And that's one of the hardest things about a breakup is like the romanticization of key touch point moments. Right. You know, you're on that bridge in Paris together or whatever, you know, like there's yeah. really profoundly connected moments to which you attach so much meaning, right? I, I remember in breakups, just like, ah! <laughs> right, just, you know, yeah. that one scene keeps replaying this tender moment we had, especially when I was much less adept at, at intimacy, that there was those like little kind of cracks in the door of my armor where some intimacy snuck through and those would be <laughs> yeah. the memories. And I'd be like, oh, oh God. You and know? you're listening to like, I listened to Boys to Men would fucking, you know. <laughs> I can't say that I listened. the road. I think we were perhaps a little different yeah. era. I was probably listening to Slayer or something. Yeah. No, but yeah, anyway, carry on with, yeah, this, with the ceremony. The third one was, what did we hope for the other person? Mm. 
and that was hard, you know, and we were, we were, you know, expressing that like, this is really hard to do because like, as this is ending, I'm now hoping you find love, fuck off, you know, like that was, so we authentically, you know, could say, I hope that, you know, your life produces this and you do create this, but there wasn't any inauthenticity or bullshit. And I mean, that was one of the most, it was one of the most challenging things I've ever done in my life. It was also the most transformative thing I'd ever done. It really did bring a richness to the ending. A lot of love, a lot of grace. I, you know, I realized that, you know, when someone says that my heart's broken, like I'll never love again. I was like, oh man, like a broken heart is one that's closed, not one that's open. Like a, a broken heart is open. You know, it is this this space where like all the hurt you experience in love ending is just evidence that you love. You know, I think that's what's so interesting about the present moment is in each moment, the moment is dying, like, in a, and you're moving towards death. So there's a richness to each moment that involves grief. And that's so true when you love someone. When you love someone, your heart is so open to them and you're actually experiencing and signing up for the loss of them. Oh my God, so good. Like that's so the hardest true. fucking part. So true. So if you haven't touched the edges of what your blocks are or your fears are, we'll have all these strategies to not go on in so many ways. Yeah, I love that. A broken heart is an open heart. But that that last piece there is so profound. I've had the experience wherein there's just one of those moments, like the moments that I described that you're, you know, you pine over after a breakup, you know, but in the midst of those moments, I've had the experience where it's like, because I know that that moment is so, so meaningful and beautiful, just a moment of connection or alignment or, or closeness, intimacy, love. There's like a grief in the moment because I know that it's fleeting. And I know yes. that someday it's going to become one of those memories right. that I'm going to look back. Ah, that moment when we kissed under, you know, whatever, whatever the moment happens so to be. It, it's like, but there's such good medicine in the acknowledgement of that feeling. I mean, I, I can remember multiple times where just tears come to my eyes and it's, you know, my wife would say like, you know, what's wrong? And I'm like, it's just, it's temporary. Yeah. And just, and if it's all temporary, what would you do with it? Yeah. You know? But just really allowing that like future tense loss to exist in this moment now. Because it does. And em- yeah, and just right. to embrace it. Because what are you going to do? Like run or close your heart? That's not a viable way to to experience the inevitable, you know? No, it isn't. Yeah. such an it, it, That right there to me is a really interesting phenomenon of, of the relational experience. Where there's kind Learn of a there's a sadness in moments of joy and connection, knowing that it's it really is fleeting and temporary. And that's the richness of the moment. Yeah, the denial of that is actually the denial of the truth, and then you're not connected to reality, and then you're not actually experiencing the richness of it, the fullness of it. Yeah, yeah. No. Oh, that's good stuff. That's good. One last thing on the the uncoupling. Say you have two people that are conscious enough to share the experience that you described, right? Like where 
even if you're not in total agreement that you both think you should break up, but, but you do and things are, you know, there's a, there's a kindness and an understanding. There's not animosity and resentment and hostility, and there's not a lot of toxic emotions around it. What about, you know, that sense that you have, well, as long as we can still be friends, cause I'm so connected to this person and maybe we weren't meant to be in that way, but how can that, or does that interfere with one of those two people's ability to then connect with someone else? You know, like, yeah. is, is this idea of staying friends with your ex a fantasy, you know, that is going to prevent you from connecting with someone else or cause interference in your new I think mostly, bond, you know? Yeah, like a lot of us try to hold on to friendship to not experience the loss of the connection, but then actually holding on to the friendship if either one of the people is hoping for more. It is holding both people back, mm. you know, and we have to be able to honor the truth of that. So many of us won't honor the truth of that for fear of loss, but you have to actually create space where you want someone else to enter. And that requires letting people go, you know, that, which doesn't mean you don't love them. That's the other idea is like, well, if I love them, then they'd stay in my life. But a lot of the relationships we hold on to actually hold us back from intimacy in the current ones. Beautiful. Guys, show notes for this episode are at lukestory.com slash groves. Man, thank you so much. Thanks for I'm having so, me, I'm so man. glad we've got to, you know, take our time with this a little me bit. Too. I mean, I do want to get to, to our next thing, but like, I feel like we could talk for two more hours yeah, without even taking a breath. And yeah. I, I love those types of conversations. So thank you so much for your, you know, your wisdom and experience and open-heartedness and just realness. I, I think that this is really going to benefit some people. I know if, if I, I mean, it's benefited me in this moment, but God, if, if I would have heard the things that you shared today, five, six years ago, I could have saved myself a lot me of hurt. Me too, shit. You yeah, know? Yeah. So I'm, I'm really grateful that we're able to share some of this with people. In closing, who have been three teachers or teachings that have influenced your life and your work that you might share with us? Oh, for sure, Alan Watts. Alan Watts, I've loved just like a spiritual comedian in so many ways. Yeah, I love same. that he brings levity to all of it. Ram Das has been a really big teacher. I like anyone who's got that intersection of spirituality with with psychology, you know, because I feel yeah. like it's the the like ethereal with the 3D, you know, they feel like they merge in psychology in so many ways. With you, just, you just named my top two podcasts. Are they? <laughs> the, both of them on the Be Here Now network. The, there's oh, like yeah, a new yeah. Alan Watts show that his son put together. Yeah, those are, someone was asking me for an interview the other day, like, what are your top three podcasts? And I was like, probably those two. And then the Tom Knowles podcast. I think it's called The Vedic Worldview. Oh, I haven't listened to that. Yeah, it's great. I'll have to check it but out. But anyway, I'm not going to no, steal your third. What, what's your third? My third is a teacher, Francis Weller. He's an incredible teacher. He, unlike the other two, is still teaching. And uh, he has an audio series called Alchemy of Initiation that I just found. I found it when I was going through the breakup. Kylie recommended it to me and a profound teacher for me. Awesome. And you've got all kinds of offerings you're doing. You, you do workshops and public speaking and online courses and stuff. This will probably come out within the next six weeks or something Sweet. like that. What do, yeah. what do you have going on at the time of this recording that people could check out if they want to delve further into your work? I have courses on breakups, recovering from codependency, boundaries, all that. You can find at createthelove.com. You can find my Instagram is createthelove. I talk more about the psychology of what's going on in the last two years on It's Mark Groves. 
And yeah, that's where you can find me. And I have a podcast, the Mark Rose Podcast, which you awesome. are about to be on. Awesome. So, thanks for having me, man. Yeah, I man. Really thanks for coming. Likewise. That brings another episode of the Lifestylist Podcast to a close. Thank you so much for joining me. And of course, if you enjoyed this episode and found some value in Mark's wisdom, I encourage you to share it with a friend. You know, someone out there that's, you know, maybe newly single and looking at getting back into the dating pool and finds it as terrifying and awkward as most of us do. I know a few people that enjoy dating, but most of us are like, uh, I want to meet someone I've got to date. Or perhaps someone who's in a relationship that's uh, struggling. As you learned in this conversation, I've had a lot of those experiences myself, and I'm happy to say I, I, I hope I've managed to work through uh, most of that difficulty. And lastly, if you know someone who's in a relationship and is struggling to keep it together and feels they might have to end it, I think Mark offered some great value at the end of this conversation in regards to conscious uncoupling. That was really cool stuff. Now, I hope I never have to go through that myself, but you know, life happens to some of us some of the time, so uh, please share it with a friend. I'd also love to meet you at my next event where I'll be speaking. This is Paleo FX, crazy cool event that I've spoken at, I think, three times before here in Austin, Texas. That's April 29th through May 1st. To get your ticket, go to lukestory.com slash events. Okay, after you've successfully partnered up with what you learned here, or maybe even deepened your existing relationship and think it's time to have some kids, Make sure to join us for next week's incredible episode featuring Ayla Kuenka. This one's called Birth Keeper, a doula's guide to natural childbearing. And despite the title, please know that uh, all of you men are welcome because next week's show is huge for me and one I continue to learn from as I dive into Ayla's online course on birth. She is just an incredible human being and I'm so grateful to be able to share her knowledge with you next week. So thank you so much for listening, and I'll be back at you next Tuesday. Mm -hmm.